Hey everyone, this is Chad Harms, the pastor of Creekside Bible Church. Thank you for taking some time to listen to my latest sermon, a sermon about the signs and speeches of Jesus and the spite that surrounded them. It will play in just a minute, but before it does, I want to say hi to a couple of people. I know that sounds a bit strange, but as we move into the new year, I think it is the perfect time to greet a few of our listeners specifically. I've mentioned before that I think it is really awesome that my sermons get listened to around the world. We are not a big church, and it just amazes me how many countries my preaching reaches through this podcast. That said, it seems that most of the time my sermons get listened to outside of the United States are one-offs. People find one of them through a search or whatever, and they listen. However, we've noticed that there are a few places where people are listening to our sermons almost every week, and I want to acknowledge those people. So to you who are listening in Madrid, Paris, Dublin, Brussels, and Frankfurt, hi. I appreciate you listening. I've prayed for you. And honestly, I think it would be really cool to connect with you. If you ever want to say hi back, send me an email at chad at creekside.me or send me a message on Instagram. My username is Chad A. Harms. And in the meantime, know that it's a huge blessing for me and for our church to know that you are listening. To everyone else, Happy New Year. I hope 2022 will be an amazing year for you, a year where you see the movement of God in your life in a mighty way. Again, thanks for listening. I hope that this sermon will help you to learn and live more fully for the glory of God. Jesus says, you know, for almost the entirety of my life, he has been, he's been everything. I mean, uh, I've told you this before, but when I was four, he was, he was my way out of hell because I heard a sermon that said, you don't want to go to hell and you want to go to heaven, except Jesus is your savior. And I thought, that sounds pretty good. I'll do that. When I was nine and my parents went through a custody battle and I was just filled with fear and anxiety, he, he was like my source of comfort and hope. When I was 17, he, he just completely took my life and, and I think really became my savior in you know, every way that that word is meant. And uh, and, and, you know, it's never changed. He's been everything to me. And at the same time, I, I see this reality around me. People hate Jesus. Like if, if you haven't noticed, like there is, a, there is a hatred towards the Jesus of the Bible. And in this series where we talk about the spite that Jesus' signs and speeches kind of produce in others, we, we've talked about how people like their own idea of Jesus. They like a Jesus that fits into their mold, but the Jesus of the Bible, people hate that Jesus, the real Jesus. People hate that Jesus. I mean, have you noticed that it? you can still talk about God in our society without people getting weird, but if you talk about Jesus, then it gets weird really fast, and I'll, I'll come back to that later uh, and maybe try to prove it a bit more, but but people people don't like Jesus, and you know, this, is, this is hard for me because on one side, Jesus has been everything to me, and I can't imagine, frankly, how terrible my life would be without him. And then on the other side, I see people hating Jesus. And last week, I preached about how there's all this, this frankly, great evidence that, that Jesus truly is the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And, and you, for me, it just it makes me wonder, like, why are people so quick to hate him? Why are people so quick to hate him? And And I think that question is important because I think a lot of people don't know hardly anything about him, and they 
just kind of dislike him or hate him or think bad things about him. And, and, and it makes me wonder why. And I think in this story that we're going to look at today, we really see at least part of the answer to that question. And I'm, I'm going to just tell you up front, I think it's because Jesus, the very nature of who he is and what he did while he walked on this earth, it challenges the status quo. And frankly, it threatens people's comfort and often their power. And so people, I think, don't reject Jesus even because they don't believe in him. And I think we'll see some of that in this story. They don't believe that he is who he says he is even. They hate Jesus because he's, he's challenging and frankly, he's threatening to certain comforts and powers and things that people like. And, and here's what I think the point of, of this story is going to be for us. You can give yourself to Jesus and gain everything or you can hate Jesus because he might cost you something. And I think that while Jesus lives on earth, there's, there's two groups. There's some who give themselves to Jesus because they believe that it means they can gain everything. And there's others who hate Jesus because they recognize that he might cost them something. Now here's, here's where the story kind of begins for those of you that weren't here last week or who have forgotten watching my face on the video screen last week uh jesus has just had this encounter where the people try to seize him and stone him like they they actually try to grab him so that they might kill him and then the next thing that we read in john 11 is that a man named lazarus is sick and we don't know a lot about lazarus in in the Gospels, like he comes up in the book of John, but we just don't know that much about him, which surprised me this week. I thought that there would be just more when I, you know, put into BibleGateway.com Lazarus, but, but we can surmise some things from this story and a couple of stories that follows. Seems to be a very good friend of Jesus. Uh, it is stated outright that Jesus loved him. Jesus seems to be friends with Lazarus and Lazarus's sisters. Uh, one of them is famous for pouring pure nard and costly perfume on Jesus' feet, which really ticks off a guy named Judas, one of Jesus' disciples. John eleven five, 5, we read this. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so he loves this family. And at the beginning of John 11, Lazarus is sick, and so his sisters, Mary and Martha, send word to Jesus that their brother is sick. Jesus says, this is not going to end in death. And he says, let's go back to Judea. And the disciples are like, wait a minute, hold on. We just left Judea. And you may remember Jesus. They tried to kill you. That's what it says in 11.8. They say, but Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you. And yet you are going back. I mean, they know this is like kind of a death sentence. I mean, we barely escaped last time we were there because the Spite was so strong against you, Jesus. Like, why are we going to go back? And the fact is that intensity of opposition is arising all around Jesus. This seems crazy because it seems like we just flipped into the new year, but we'll be celebrating Easter soon. And if it helps you for the timeline of the book of John, we, we scheduled out the sermons in order that I'd be preaching on the resurrection 
on Easter. Go figure, right? And so it just if that helps you, we're a couple of months away here at our church from preaching on the resurrection, which means that a lot of things are going to happen here between this story and, and what happens when Jesus comes back from the dead. But you can tell because of that, the spite is rising. The opposition is rising. And so Jesus looks at them and he says, hey, Lazarus is asleep. And they're like, well, if he sleeps, he's going to get better. Like, come on, that's what you do when you're sick, Jesus. And then in 11, 14, and 15, it says, so then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Now, I want to just pause here. Lazarus is dead. We'll see what happens with him in a minute. But he says that he's glad Lazarus is dead so that the people, that the disciples may believe. And we've talked about this quite a bit as we've moved our way through the book of John. If you haven't been around, belief is a huge idea in the book of John. And I've said several times that it is not just, you know, mentally believing something to be true, mentally thinking something to be true. In the book of John and in all the Gospels, it is really about committing oneself to Jesus. And I wanted to like, man, like in so many sermons, you don't know this, you don't see on my sermon notes, but I've had belief illustration. And then I, I haven't come up with one that I liked and I've just left it and I haven't given any illustration. I thought more about it this week and I had, it literally says believe illustration right here in pink, which is my illustration color. And it's like, okay, what's my illustration? I've been thinking about it. And there's like all of these things that like you've probably heard before if you've been around church and I didn't want to be like, you know, the guy who just gave you an illustration you've heard. Like, maybe you've seen the chair. People say, like, you can believe that the chair will hold your weight, but, you know, biblical belief is sitting in the chair. There's the barrel illustration of the guy who's, like, carrying a barrel across Niagara Falls. Have you ever heard this one on a, on a, on a uh, line, on a tightrope? There's the word, on a tightrope. And, and, and he says, who believes I can do it? And everybody raised their hand. And then, and then he says, okay, who will volunteer? And, of course, nobody raised their hand, and that's the difference in some ways. I saw the idea of a physician, believing a physician, uh, you know, is, knows what's best for you versus, you know, going into surgery. Uh, I saw one about bulletproof vests and a cop saying, okay, you believe it works, let's put it on you and shoot you. I don't feel like that's ethical or logical, uh, but I saw that one. Uh, but as I thought about it this week, I, and this might be the worst illustration I've ever given you, but it worked for me. I thought about my son, and, and, you know, he's four years old, and he's starting to want to do things that, you know, are, are bigger kid kind of things, and my daughter's starting to be able to help with some things, and there's a lot of times that I, I actually believe that Hudson could do them, right? Like, he could do them, but there's no way I'm going to entrust him with the responsibility. I thought about making coffee. This is, this is the illustration that, that came to my head as I processed this week, and like, like, especially with my daughter who's six, but like Hudson might be able to make the coffee in our house. I think he knows the steps. If he said, Dad, do you believe that I can make the coffee? I think I could say yes. But if he said, Dad, will you let me make the coffee? I would say there is no chance you're making the coffee for so many reasons. Like, I don't want you to get hurt. You'll probably drop the thing, step on the glass, have a cut. We'll have to go to the hospital. I mean, like, I don't want my coffee pot broken, you know, lesser degree. I don't want to have to clean up the coffee later. There's so many reasons that I, Hudson, am not going to let you 
make the coffee. And I think that's similar to this idea of believing, you know, especially in the book of John. It's like we can look at Jesus and say, yeah, I believe that you're the one who can save. But belief is about saying, you know what, I'm going to entrust myself to you completely and fully for salvation. In other words, in this illustration, which may make it the worst illustration ever, but I hope it's helpful, we become the coffee pot. I know that's crazy, but we become the coffee pot. And the question is, you know, not whether or not you think that Jesus has the ability to, you know, turn you into something new, make you into something valuable, take care of you, keep you from, you know, being broken and crushed and all those things. The question is not whether you believe he can do that. The question is whether or not you will allow for yourself to be the coffee pot that has been entrusted to him. Like, will you actually allow for your life to be a vessel of his presence on earth? Will you allow for him to pour you out and into whatever he deems right and good and true? Are you going to fully entrust yourself to him like coffee does to us? That's the question. And so I don't know if that illustration is helpful, but I want you to see that belief, man, I think there's so many people, and I think we encounter some in this story, who believe that the guy could make the coffee, but they're just not willing to become the coffee because it might cost them something to do so. Perhaps terrible illustration aside, here's what happens next in John eleven twenty five 25 through 27. Jesus said to her, talking to one of the sisters, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. So Jesus, his disciples, they go, they encounter one of his sisters. He shows up and she's like, hey, he's dead. And he's like, he's going to live. And then we have this incredible encounter where Jesus says this incredible thing. I mean, she's like, yeah, I think he'll live, right? Like in the resurrection, the last day. And Jesus is saying like, He's going to live now. Do you believe? you got to believe. And then she says something really important. She says, you are the Messiah, the Son of God, which has come into the world, which is, if you've been around, I hope you know this by now, this is exactly why John has written this book. He says it in John 20, 30, and 31. He's like, I've, I've recorded these things so that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have eternal life, you may be saved. And here is another piece of evidence. This woman who knows him, whose brother has just died, looks at him and says, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who's come into this world. There's this other thing here. This is one of the seven I am statements in the book of John. And I, you know, it's funny because I'm, I'm working my way through the book of John and there's these major themes that, that we haven't even hit on. And at the very beginning, for those of you who have been around since the beginning as we studied through this book, I said that John, the book of John has been compared to an onion where there's all these layers and it's deep and it's poetic. And it's the reason that I don't like the book of John as much as the others because I'm not deep or poetic or, you know, like philosophical by nature. And so I struggle. Like, I just want... John to tell me what he really means. But it's beautiful. And there's these spots in the book where John records Jesus saying, I am, and then you fill in the blank. And we're going to talk more fully about those seven I am statements in a few weeks. 
But here he says, I am the resurrection and the life. In other words, he is the source of life and he's the source of new and eternal life that can last forever. In order to have it, we must believe, we must be willing to give ourselves to him, to entrust ourselves fully to him, to, to be uh, followers of him, followers that are willing to go wherever he wants us to go and do whatever he wants us to do. But if we will, if we will do that, then he is the resurrection and the life and will give us eternal life. We will never die. It's been said in a few ways in the book of John so far, and I love them. We will live even though we will die. We will never see death. I think these things are so important. I, uh, you know, it's not lost on me that, as I said a couple of weeks ago, we're, we've been touched more by death. My family's been more touched by death and death of people we love and, and people uh, that we love loved ones than we have been, you know, ever maybe in our whole lives. And and just the news, you know, just puts it in our faces all the time how much, you know, how frequent death is. And, and as I actually just said this to somebody this morning, it's not until death is right in front of us that we can really feel the importance of eternal life. Right, because, because death sucks and it hurts. But Jesus is saying there is a way out, and it's him. He, he is the way out. That if we will believe in him, then we don't ever have to worry about this thing called death. Yeah, you know, we will unless Jesus comes back and takes us home. We will breathe our last breath on this earth. Our bodies will stop working, but it won't matter to us because we will wake up in the perfection of heaven. I've made a big deal in, you know, as we've gone through John about talking about how eternal life starts now. It starts now. That's really clear in the book of John. Today, I just want to make a bigger deal about how eternal life will last forever. Jesus offers us a way to live forever. And there is great hope in that. And that hope is realized, that hope is recognized, I think, when we are in the face of death. And, and here's, man, that makes this idea, the big idea that I'm trying to present to you today, such an important idea, right? You can give yourself to Jesus and gain everything, including life that will last forever, or you can hate Jesus because he will cost you something. And it seems like a difficult choice if you take away eternal life. Like, well, following Jesus might cost me something. My friends might like me less. I might have less fun. All these things that... I don't know, I think people think wrongly. But when the trade-off is life that lasts forever, then, then it is such a good trade. It's such a good trade. So anyway, Jesus goes to Judea and goes to Lazarus' grave and he asks for the stone to be taken away and Martha, one of Lazarus' sisters, is like, it's not a good idea. He's been dead for four days. It's going to stink in there and Jesus reminds her that if she believes, she will see God's glory, and he has the stone removed. And then this is what we read in John eleven forty one through 44. So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. 
When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. This is incredible, right? And it's one of those stories that throughout the book of John, I, it's just mind-blowing to me how quickly people dismiss these stories. Again, and again, and again, and again, I'm going to say, this is being recorded for us by an eyewitness who is willing at the end of his life to sacrifice everything for Jesus. A weird thing to do if you just think you've made all these things up, right? That's a weird transaction. Like, yeah, I made up a bunch of stuff and I'm willing to at least be arrested, maybe die for it. Like, that doesn't make any sense to me personally. And here he is, this eyewitness, writing this story down saying, Jesus brought a man back from the dead. And he did it so that you and I may believe that he is the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior of all who will believe in him. Now, now, it's not the first sign. In fact, it's the seventh sign. There's seven I am statements in the book of John, and there are seven signs that John points out. He wants us to recognize things. They teach us things about Jesus. They're all deep. They're all profound. They all have a little mystery around them. Uh, He changes the water into wine. He heals the royal son's official. He heals the paralytic at the pool. He feeds over 5,000 people with fish and bread, a few loaves of fish and bread. He walks on water. He heals a man born blind. And now he raises Lazarus from the dead. And John wants you to see these signs because he wants you to recognize that Jesus truly is the Savior. And he wants you to believe in him, to actually entrust yourself to him. Not to think, wow, I think he might be the Savior. But to say, Jesus, I will give you my life. Even though I recognize it might cost me something, I will believe in you because I stand to gain everything if I will. Man, I just, I'm just amazed. Like, people just hate Jesus even though the offer is eternal life and the proof is really incredible. And, and I think really now, you may have not believed me to this point, but we're going to really start to see why in, in just, A second. Verses 45 through 50. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and seen what Jesus did believed in him. Great. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing? They asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. Do you not realize that it's better for one for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish? So the response here is just like the response in all these stories we've been looking at. It's like this whole section of John where Jesus says some stuff, he does some incredible stuff, and then there's these responses. There's indifference, but mostly there's belief or spite. And here, wow, crazy. The people tattletale on Jesus. <laughs> like, what a weird, like, he, it's a really bad tattletale. Hey, he, he raised a guy from the dead. Like, 
wow, what a terrible thing to do. Like, how do you take this seriously? It definitely does not fit within our family's tattletaling rules. Like, I really, I, I do not like tattletaling, and I have called my kids tattletales before. Don't be a tattletale. Like, I sound like I'm their age when I do it. Our rule is simply this. I don't need to know about it unless it's hurting you, the person you're telling on, or someone else. Like, then you come and tell me. But other than that, like, if they're just robbing a bank and nobody's harmed, like, just keep, keep me out of it. I was enjoying my book, you know? Like, um, I, obviously not that extreme. But that is our rule. Like, if it's not hurting somebody, like, I don't need to know about it. Like, so they took your Lego. Don't be a tattletale. Like, have a conversation. Like, that is our rule. And hear the audacity for these people to go, hey, Pharisees. Raised the guy from the dead. And their response, I mean, how, what would your response be? Let's go check it out. That sounds incredible. That's really cool. I'm excited to hear that. It's like we have to do something about this. We have to do something about this. We have got to get rid of this man. John eleven fifty three says it outright. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life plotted to take his life. Notice the language in the middle of it all. What are we accomplishing? Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Everyone will believe in him. What are, like That's crazy that they recognize that. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. I remember sitting in a Life of Christ class when I was in college, and we debated this thing that I think is important for our purposes today. And the debate was whether these religious leaders actually believed that Jesus was the Son of God, the Messiah. Like, did they actually believe that to be true? And the fact that we can actually have a debate around that is crazy because whether they did or didn't, I don't know. We never solved it for you. But, like, the fact that we can debate that is incredible given the fact that they continue to grow in their desire to kill him. Like they don't necessarily seem to say, you know what, this guy's lying about being the Messiah. They're concerned, did you hear it there? They're concerned about what it will cost them if he grows in popularity. I mean, the dumbest thing in the world. They're hearing about these incredible signs and they're saying, well, if Jesus keeps doing these amazing things that are miraculous, that are divine, then everybody's going to believe in him. Well, that suggests it's pretty good proof that they too should believe in him, right? But they're not going to believe in him, not like this. Why? Because it might cost them something. Now, you need to know about these people. They have power and authority and money. And part of the reason for that is the Romans have allowed for them to be in charge religiously. Some of them have rule and reign over Jewish affairs. And so these people have good lives. And they look at Jesus and they recognize that if he goes on unchecked, whether Messiah or not, it might cost them their esteem and their money and their authority and even their autonomy they're not worried about whether or not Jesus is truly the Savior. They're worried about what he might cost them. 
And we've seen it all through, all through the story. Like if you just read the life of Jesus, read his words, read the Sermon on the Mount, which I preached on not that long ago. Read the things he said about following him. We're going to do a whole series, most excited um, for any series in this whole kind of mega series through John. And for me, the one I'm most excited about is the next one on being a disciple of Jesus. Like that, that will, co- it, it, it's so clear it will cost you something. He was radical. He doesn't fit into their culture the way that they want him to, and nor does he fit into our culture. He does not align with the status quo that some of us like. And so he forces this question for all people. Are you going to give yourself to Jesus and gain everything, even though it might cost you something? Or will you hate him because of that cost? I mean, then we, I mean, we flip over and we see basically the same thing. John 12, 3. Then Mary took about, about a pint of pure nard and expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So that's really great. She's like worshiping Jesus. And then you read that Judas, Judas, he's famous because he's the one that turns Jesus in. He's the traitor in the group. Judas objects. We're going to talk more about Judas in a couple of weeks in the aforementioned next sermon series, but I'll just mention here that the reason he objects is because he's been stealing from the donations that have come to Jesus for the poor. He doesn't like that this act of worship is going to cost him something. Now, the profit he's making off of stealing from the poor. And it points our attention again to the fact that you can give yourself to Jesus and gain everything or hate Jesus because he will, it's not that he might, he will cost you something. And in John 12, 9 through 11, the final verses I'll read, it says, Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. Or on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. I mean, they got to get rid of the proof. Because even the proof is going to cost them something. The story of Lazarus' resurrection is incredible proof that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And it's incredible proof that Jesus is the Savior. And I hope that every one of you, whether here or watching online, understands how he becomes the Savior. He lives his life perfectly while on earth, despite all of the spite that exists around him. He lives a perfect life, and at the end of that perfect life, he allows for himself to be horrifically killed by being nailed to a cross, and on that cross, he pays the punishment for our sins. He suffers the penalty of hell. He dies, and he comes back to life three days later, and he says, if you will believe in me, if you will entrust yourself to me, then you can have eternal life now, and that eternal life will exist into eternity. That's awesome. So why do people hate Jesus? I mean, and they do. Think about this. Jesus is used as a swear word for most people. That's the closest that most people will ever get to Jesus, is using his name as a swear word. That doesn't happen for other religions. People mock Christians on shows all the time. I I barely find a sitcom to watch where they don't immediately mock the Christian, right? Prime Minister Boris Johnson 
said a, a couple of years ago this, in, in light of mounting evidence that Christians suffer the most widespread persecution, and then he went on to talk about what they were going to do. The most widespread persecution. How often do we talk about that? How often does that become news? That Christians are the most widespread persecution group in the world. Never. Forbes says Christians emerge as the world's most widely targeted faith group. From 2010 to 2020, uh, there was somewhere between, I know this is ridiculous, but 3,000 and 90,000 Christians killed every year. And I know that's a huge difference in stats. It comes down to how you count wars and things like that. But just, let's just take 3,000. We don't know about that. It doesn't come to the forefront of our minds or our news or anything we talk about. I mean, 3,000 Christians a year are being killed. Why? Because they love and serve and have entrusted themselves to a person named Jesus. And the reason for all of that, I think, is primarily because Jesus challenges the status quo and following him absolutely will cost you something. And so it's easier. It's easier to hate him than to embrace him because of what he might cost you and frankly might cost culture in general if people follow him. I guess what I I just want you to know from my sermon is that people don't hate Jesus because there's not good proof that he really is the savior of the world. People don't hate him because he said mean things or bad things. They don't hate him for the reasons that, uh, that they often give. Like, well, I, met, I have a Christian neighbor and he was a jerk. That's not why people hate Jesus. They hate Jesus because he, he calls into question the status quo and because he will, a, a life where you follow him will cost you something. And he makes clear that if you don't follow him, it will cost you everything. And so what I want you to hear today is just what I've said throughout. You can give yourself to Jesus and gain everything, or you will end up hating Jesus if you don't already because you recognize that he will cost you something. And I would offer to you that the best choice, the only truly good choice to make is to follow him in order that you might gain everything. Jesus himself says, what good does it, man, does it do a man to gain the whole world but yet forfeit his soul. And what most people are trying to do is hold on to just a little piece of the world. And they're doing it at the cost of their souls. And so for those of you that aren't Christians, that haven't entrusted yourself to Jesus, that haven't said, you can have my life and do whatever you want with it, I would just beg you to believe in Jesus for the salvation of sins. Believe that he died for your sins and he came back to life conquering sin and death for all who might believe in him and offering you eternal life. And for those of us that are Christians, I would just ask that you would remember that whatever you've sacrificed for Jesus is not that big a deal compared to everything that you have gained. And you would remember, because it's hard sometimes. You say, Jesus, 
You're not doing things exactly how I want you to do them. Jesus, you didn't say yes to my last prayer. Jesus, like, hey, it's costing me something to be your follower here. I would hope that today as you hear these words, you would remember, yes, it has cost you something. It has. If it's cost you nothing to follow Jesus, then you're probably not following him or at least not following him very well. It's cost you something. But you have gained everything because of that decision. Let me pray that you will remember. Lord Jesus, I, I, I beg you, Lord, and I ask that your Holy Spirit would speak to the souls of every person, God, who's, who's listening to me talk right now, Lord. And, and you would speak to their souls and you would compel them that they are in need of a Savior. And you would compel them, God, to believe that giving their life, their life to you, Jesus, is, is absolutely the best decision. And God, I think people know it will cost them something, and they fear that. But I pray, frankly, that they'd fear more, God, what it means to not give themselves to you. And they would understand that the trade-off is <laughs> it's worth every ounce, Lord. I know that. I started by talking about how personally you've been everything to me, and I can't. What you've, what you've cost me, Lord, is <laughs> a drop compared to the ocean of your grace that I've experienced for the entirety of my life, and I want more people to know that. God, I do pray for those of us who are Christians, and I pray, God, that whatever sacrifice we're making, whatever sacrifice we feel like we've had to make, and that you would, remem- you would remind us, God, that it, it is worth it. Lord, I pray that today we'd be overwhelmed with gratitude for all that you have given us, Jesus, even if there are areas of our life, God, where we are looking at you saying, this isn't what I wanted it to be. This is not how I thought it would be. I don't feel what I I thought I'd feel, and I I don't have the joy I once had in you. Even if, if, God, all that is true, I pray that we would look at you and we would be overwhelmed with gratitude for the eternal life that you came to give us. I pray these things, Jesus, in your holy name. Amen.